You know, that, that video captures so well um, this new series that we're starting today on the book of Philemon. Um, it's a book of the upside down. It's a book that shows just what the gospel does. I'll get more into that. Um, we are going to dive into the, to a book of the Bible. We haven't done that in quite some time here, just, just straight through. And we picked the book of Philemon. It's a great book. There's a great story that kind of surrounds uh, the letter itself. And so that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks is we're going to go basically verse by verse uh, through the book. It, it'll be fun. Um, and, and as we do so, well, one, one thing, the book of Philemon, who knows um, the shortest book of the Bible? Anyone? Second John, anyone? Um, Philemon is the third shortest book of the Bible by word. It's 445 words long, which is super short. It's like a one-page paper. It's really, really short. It's a letter. It's really not a book. And what we're going to do in this series as we kind of go verse by verse through it is we are going to pay particular attention to this gospel of the upside down thing. Um, the, the image on the screen of things slowly turning around, that in so many ways is what happens when we encounter the gospel of Jesus. It's what happens. And there's things in our lives that once seemed right and things that we should do and then we meet Jesus and and then suddenly those things are turned upside down and they're no longer things we feel we should be doing. And then there's those other things where, you know, it's like that thing is this thing that is probably just not a good idea to do. I stay away from that. And then we meet Jesus and things get turned around and you find yourself, no, no, I, I need to do whatever that thing may be. It's what the gospel does. It turns our lives upside down. And the letter to Philemon is a great example of what that looks like on so many levels. And so that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks. Um, this morning, we are going to address the first seven verses of uh, the letter to Philemon. And because we're going to be spending so much time on each verse, we really want you to have a Bible in your hands as we do it. We want to spend more time with this and less time looking up at the screen, even though that's really fun. We'll do that later for the Super Bowl. I know it. Um, and the Patriots will lose, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. I'm about to be booed off the stage. I love this. <laughs> In the name of Jesus. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to dive into uh, Philemon. It's a, it's a really uh, neat book. And so if you want to grab a Bible, there will be so, so much less scripture on the screen today. You're going to want it, or you can pull it up on your phone, whatever helps you. And so we're going to hit the first seven verses. If you do have one of the Bibles that are at the back there, that page is 967. I don't always do that, but the book of Philemon is a half a page. It's right after Titus, right before Hebrews. Super hard to find, even for a pastor. I'm telling you, it's difficult. Anyway, so our scripture reading uh, will be verses 1 through 7. Uh, Terry Winkle has graciously volunteered to read for us this morning. So Terry, I will uh, welcome you up there. What we do is we stand and we face the center of the room if you're able to for the reading of God's word. A Bible in hand is preferable and you can follow along like that if you'd like. Um, and we do this every single week to pay attention to the fact that this is a true story. It's the story of the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news. So Terry, take it away. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, 
because I hear about your love from all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Thank you, Terry. Um, everyone, you may be seated. Now, to kick off the letter to Philemon, there's one thing we have to understand. And that is, this letter is, is just one little piece in a much broader story that's going on. The reason this letter was written, all that fun stuff, there's a big story behind it. And so, it is important that we take a minute and just walk through some context to figure out um, what exactly is going on. Um, the letter to Philemon basically has three main characters, if you want to think about it that way. The first is someone pretty familiar, the Apostle Paul. Um, the Apostle Paul, when this letter is written, was probably in Rome at the time, and he was imprisoned at the time. Um, if you look in verse 1 in your Bible, if you're open there, you're going to want to. Um, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Paul, though that may be metaphorical as well, we'll talk about that later, it absolutely is possible that Paul was imprisoned at the time, perhaps imprisoned in a home or in a, a jail itself. We're not 100% sure. The other thing is that Paul, um, this is going to be a shocker, is the one that actually wrote this letter. And Paul wrote this letter to the second kind of main character in the letter. And that second main character is who the, the letter was named after, Philemon. Now, Philemon, um, from the best we can gather, was a follower of Jesus who was probably living in the city of Colossae at the time. And the letter gives us a couple hints about just who Philemon was. Philemon was probably a wealthy man. Um, and we know that because in verse 2, let me just read it for you a second. I'll read the first half of verse 1 and then 2. It says, Paul writes, To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia and our, our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And it's that meets in your home that's really important to notice because not just anyone could have a church meeting in their home. Someone with some um, square footage could have someone meet in their home, which meant if you had square footage in this day, you were wealthy, you had money. So it's a good chance that Philemon was a wealthy guy. The second reason we would think he's wealthy is because he, it says, that he owned slaves. He was a slave master of sorts. And wealthy folks in that day um, tended to be the ones that were slave owners. Now, we get to know one of those slaves in this letter. Um, it's the third kind of main character in the letter, and that slave's name is Onesimus, which is a great name. You can say it three times fast. It's fun. Onesimus. And the context of the story of Onesimus the slave is that Onesimus, at some point, for whatever reason, flees from his master, slave master Philemon, and finds himself in Rome um, in Paul's company for some reason. Now, we don't know exactly what the context is of what the dispute was. We don't know, you know, if, you, if uh, Philemon was violent or something like that, or it was just some disagreement. We just simply don't know. But we do know that it was probably a quite significant falling out between um, slave owner and slave. And we know that because of where um, Onesimus flees to. 
Um, if you're living um, where Onesimus is, you could flee a couple miles down the road to the, local, to the next town over if you wanted to. You could flee 10 miles away and you could make it to Laodicea if you wanted to. But that's not what happens. Instead, Onesimus flees to Rome where Paul is. And Rome was a one-way trip that involved 1,200 miles of travel. Now that is incredible in the ancient world to make a trip like that. That would have taken months and months and months for him to even get there. And the second thing is, it would have been incredibly dangerous day after day. He's a runaway slave. He doesn't have a lot of resources with him. And so he's on these paths headed towards Rome day after day. And the paths were dangerous places to be. He probably slept on the side of the road every night for months. He could have been murdered. And so it had to have been quite a conflict for a slave to to flee and to flee that far away. And so Onesimus makes it to Rome, and he finds himself in the presence of the Apostle Paul. And at some point, Paul preaches the gospel to him, and and Onesimus comes to believe in Jesus um, and meets Jesus. And then something weird happens. Paul says, Onesimus, you need to go home now. You fled. You need to go home. You need to go back from where you came from. And so Paul pens a letter to Philemon, And he hands it to Onesimus, and then he sends Onesimus, the slave, off back home to a slave master. And that letter is the letter that we're studying throughout this series. And really, the whole point of the letter for Paul, the reason he would write it is for one reason. He would say, Philemon, this is what I want for you. I want you to welcome back Onesimus, and I don't want you to welcome back with anger or not even as a slave anymore. I want you to welcome him back as a brother, as a spiritual brother in Christ. And that's really the scope of the letter. Now, we could easily retitle this letter um, something else. And I, I thought long and hard about this. We needed three Ps because it would just sound good. And we could rename it Paul's power of persuasion, because that's really what it is. It's a guidebook on how to persuade people. The whole letter from stem to stern is Paul trying to convince Philemon to let Onesimus come back and to come back safely and to come back as a freed brother in Christ. Now, what Paul understands about persuasion is something that I think we all understand about persuasion as well, and that is this. That persuading people, to our point of view, is incredibly difficult. Isn't it? It is, isn't it? If we have an opinion and someone has the opposite opinion, to get that person onto our team is incredibly difficult to do. It is so difficult, in fact, that psychologists have studied the art of persuasion for a long time and tried to figure out why it is that changing our minds is so difficult. And one of the things that has popped up in psychology is this, that when someone comes to us and they want to change our mind, something happens in our brain. 
what happens is our brain registers that as a physical threat, in a sense. And so our brain puts on all the defenses, danger, danger, Will Robinson, like that kind of thing, right? And so we put up a wall because we're concerned. We feel like we're in danger, actually, when someone tries to persuade us to something new. It'd be kind of like if one of you, and don't do this, please, were to get up and you're angry, and then you ran onto the platform here, and then you just put a fist of justice right toward my face, right? Some of you want to see that, I think, actually. Um, But imagine somebody went to do that. If my brain was working correctly, um, I would register that as a uh, conflict, and I would need to defend myself. And usually, you know, a pastor's way of defending is screaming and running away, but that, you know, that's beside the point. It's different. One psychologist has talked about this, actually, and this is what he says. Listen to this. His name is uh, Jonas Kaplan. He says, the brain's primary responsibility is to take care of the body, to protect the body. The psychological self is the brain's extension of that. When our self feels attacked, our brain is going to bring to bear the same defenses that it has for protecting the body. And so when we feel like someone is trying to persuade us to change our mind in some way, our brain interprets that as danger. And so we go into a posture of protection, of defending ourselves. And the way we defend ourselves is our opinions that we have or our beliefs, they begin to harden. The concrete hardens and our standpoint or our view um, just sticks harder and harder and harder and it's harder and harder for someone to actually change it. We have seen this. Um, for those of you on social media, you've seen this. Because a big fight erupts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or something like that. And then both sides, you know, they duke it out and then one side always wins and the other changes their mind, right? Like that's how it works on social media. It's not, for the record. That's not how it works ever. No one's mind has ever been changed on social media. It doesn't work that way. Now, I say this because Paul writes the first seven verses of the letter to Philemon with this in mind, I think. And so what he does is he uses all of his psychological tools he has in his tool belt to try to effectively change Philemon's mind. And I think he knows that it's going to be an uphill battle. And his goal is to change Philemon's mind to welcome Onesimus back, not as a slave, not with anger, not with punishment, but as a brother in Christ. Now, I want us to see the way that Paul does this. If you have your Bible open, you're going to want to turn there a second. Turn to Philemon verse 1 a second, if you can. Because Paul greets Philemon, but he says something particular. This is what it says. I'll read it. Paul says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Paul, a prisoner. We just talked about this prisoner thing earlier, but there's more going on with this phrase prisoner. Because in the ancient world, if you were at the status of a prisoner, prisoner, you were really the least of these. You had no honor. You were the bottom of the barrel of society. And Paul says this, hey, Philemon, I'm a prisoner. And Paul says this knowing that Philemon is the opposite. Philemon is a wealthy man. He's near the top of society. Paul strategically places himself beneath Philemon to change his mind. It's kind of interesting. When dealing with conflict, Paul assumes the role of 
powerlessness. How many of us do that in conflict? Anyone? Me either. I don't ever do that. No, we got to win. We got to power up, baby. Right? We got to win this baby. That's generally how it works. But Paul does the opposite. In essence, Paul says, Philemon, I'm nothing. You are greater than I am. Will you hear me now? It's a great tactic, I think. Now, if you turn to verse 2 in our uh, scripture reading, Paul addresses, uh, he doesn't just address Philemon, but he addresses more than that. Listen to this, and I'll read the first half of verse 1, 2. It says, To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Meaning that what Paul did is he entitled the letter to Philemon. That's his letter. And then he said, oh, but it's not just to you, Philemon. It's also to your friends. It's also to your church. Meaning when this letter would arrive, what Philemon would need to do is read it in front of his entire church body. In essence, what Paul was doing is he makes his plea public for the whole church to know. And he does that for a reason. Because sometimes when we're in a conflict with people and it's just me and the other person and no one else knows about this conflict, we treat each other, we make decisions toward each other that are different from than if it was public, right? We've probably seen this before in our lives too. And so Paul says, I'm going to make it public. This is a church matter now. There's a certain accountability that comes with that. Now, if you look in verses 4 through 7, you can turn there a second and take a look. I'm going to read that for you. There's a third way that Paul tries to convince Philemon, tries to get him to change his mind. This is what Paul says. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Which is really interesting. Because often, when we're in a conflict, um, we don't try to talk about how great the other person is that we're in the conflict with, right? At least that's not what I do. No, our goal in a conflict for most of us, I think, um, is we tear the other person down. Like, they're buffoons. They're the losers. They're wrong. And we want to make sure they know that, right? Like, that's what we do in a conflict. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul does something, he basically does the opposite of that. Paul speaks of how much Philemon means to him. And how they're partners in the gospel together and that his love, Philemon's love, is known among the community. In fact, that Philemon's love isn't just known among the community, but it has affected Paul personally. Philemon's a good man is basically what Paul wants to get out of that. It's really interesting. If you look at Philemon's name, which some of you are going to think, that's a Pokemon. I don't know. Philemon. Sounds like a Pokemon. Um, but some of us... So if we read his name, it's Philemon, and if you split it in half, you have Philae, and then you have Mon, right? Um, Philae, not like Philae Mignon. That's what some of us are thinking for dinner. That's different. This is Greek. Philae is actually a Greek word. It's the Greek word phileo, phileo. And the Greek word phileo is a term um, for love, actually. And actually, it's a specific kind of love. It's a term for brotherly love. 
Now, I don't know if that's Philemon's real name or if Paul just nicknamed him Philemon. I don't know. But it's interesting to me because Paul is saying something, I think, by saying his name so many times. Philemon, you are the guy that's known for your brotherly love. That's how I know you. It's a great compliment to him. Now, I really want us to just stop and think for a moment about uh, kind of what Paul says. So the Apostle Paul who penned the majority of the New Testament. He is like the rock star of Christianity, probably even to today. Paul declares that this man named Philemon, who is probably a harsh slave master, that this Philemon guy is the embodiment of love. Think about that. Does that make you uncomfortable? Because it does me. But Paul actually says, Philemon, you're a good follower of Jesus. Paul said, you actually have a massive influence for Christ, Philemon. You do. Paul says, actually, you've influenced me personally, Philemon. You really have. But, but Philemon's a slave owner. That's what's interesting. And I think we can all agree that slavery is wrong, right? I think we're all on the same page here. Slavery is not a good thing. Philemon was a part of an evil institution, He was living, uh, he was doing something in his life that was just plain bad. Anytime people are stripped of their status of human or their humanity and stripped of their freedom and their utility to make choices, we call that unjust in our society. I think we do. It's evil. It's wrong. And Philemon should have known better in his day. He followed the Jewish Jesus. And that Jewish Jesus knew the Old Testament. I'm sure Philemon knew the Old Testament. And really the centerpiece of the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus where God comes down to his people and saves them from slavery. And says, slavery is a bad thing, Jewish people. Don't do that thing. It's a bad thing. If a slave were to come into your land, Jewish people, you treat them as a person, not as a slave. That's the God of the Old Testament. Philemon should have known this. See, it makes me wonder about Philemon. Is Philemon the bad guy in the story? Is he a bad guy in the letter? Is he the bad guy? And I think... I don't know, from our perspective today, 2,000 years later, I wonder if, yeah, he, he is. He's a bad guy. Because today, more than I think any time, at least in my life, and I think it's probably true for America in general, today we have this dichotomy that we've built, right? There's good guys and there's bad guys, and there's really no room in the middle for that. There's just the good guys and the bad guys, and that is it. There's no middle ground. And if someone were to do something morally bad in our society or publicly or something like that, then we have no problem saying that person is bad. Get them out of here, right? Like that's what we do as Americans. It's how we think. And we believe this and we take it personal, don't we? Because many of us in the room, even this morning, probably have secrets that we would never tell another person ever. Because we fear that if that secret came to light and came out in the public, we would be one of the bad guys, right? And we don't want that, 
do we? I mean, think of our politics today. If you watch Fox News or CNN, whatever, pick your poison, have fun with it. If you watch any of them, the way that they talk about the other side is amazing. They're bad people. They're the bad guys. The liberals are the enemy. The conservatives are the enemy. And we have all kinds of isms to talk about it too, right? We're a bunch of bad guys on the other side, right? That's how we think politically. There's the good guys. There's the bad guys. That's honestly how we think as a society in general. There's good guys and bad guys. We want to be the good ones, I think. But the thing is, Paul, with Philemon the slave master, which is an awful thing, right? We think that's bad. Paul refused to call him the enemy. Refused to. And he had every opportunity to lay into him for it. But he didn't. Instead, Paul called him someone with a reputation for love and a partner of the gospel. That Philemon was largely faithful to the Lord. That he was a slave owner, yes. And he also, you know, maybe was, was a bad slave owner, right? But Paul can see beyond that. Paul can see Philemon's blind spots and weaknesses and, and still judge him as a good person. It's really interesting. Because Paul understood something. He understood the gospel. He really got it. That it is only through God's eyes that people are good or bad. That's how it works. It's God's judgment. And so Paul saw Philemon as an authentic follower of Jesus with blind spots too. He was a little bit of both, all in one package. And you see, if we're honest with ourselves, we are no different than Philemon. We're no different. Many of us would say we are authentic, serious followers of Jesus and we are filled with blind spots, aren't we? All of us. We are. And you see, there's good news here. The good news is that the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, right? That God chooses to work through us still, despite our blind spots. That's how God works. In fact, God doesn't just work through the righteous. I think he actually doesn't work through the righteous because I haven't seen any yet, right? God chooses to work through the broken and the cracked people of society. God chooses to work through people that have a shameful history where they've done things and they regret those things that they've done. God chooses to work through people that they have faith, they believe, they really do, but then there's those days when they really struggle to believe. God works through those people too. God works through you and me exactly where we are. He does. Paul, um, earlier in Romans, he would talk about this. In Romans 8.28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, every part of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, God works through all of it. He does. Folks, isn't that incredible news? Isn't it? We don't have to have it all together for God to work through us. Where we are right now, if, whether it's a mess or whatever it may be, whether we have secrets, whether we have shame, whatever it is, God still chooses to work through you and me. It's amazing. Through people like us. And here's the thing. 
when that really sinks in for us, like when we really begin to believe that, we will have a new courage to be receptive when our blind spots are revealed to us. We'll have power to change those things when we believe that God still works through us, despite our blind spots. And we all have them, don't we? We all do. None of us in the room has it figured out yet, I don't think. Maybe. I know I don't. We don't. We all are filled with blind spots. And you see, often, God uses other people in our lives to help us see our blind spots all the time. God used Paul to help Philemon see his blind spots. That, this slavery thing, this is a thing that doesn't happen in God's kingdom anymore. This is it. It is over. Paul spoke that to him. God uses people around you and me every single day to expose us to our blind spots. The question is, where are your blind spots? Where are they? And how receptive are you to seeing them, to searching them out? How honest are we? Has God placed someone in our lives right now that is trying to show us some of our blind spots? And can we hear them? Can we really hear them? Can we? You know, in a moment, um, we're going to enter a time of worship. And what we're going to do um, is we're going to kind of spend some time on this blind spots thing. And, and as soon as we start singing the first song, I would encourage you to just pray. Be with Jesus in this space this morning. Jesus is present. And ask him to start revealing those blind spots so you can do something about them. So you can live closer and closer to the way of Jesus. So we can be honest and pursue righteousness and holiness, right? Isn't that what we want? I think it is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you inspired um, your word and you sent it among your people, God. And God, it's amazing that such a small little letter like Philemon made it into your book and it is so filled with truth and good news. It's so full of you, God. We thank you for that. And so God, as we, as we enter into time of worship, God, we truly ask your spirit to be present among us. God, be with your people in the next few minutes. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord raise his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen, church? Amen.